doesn't matter what your niche is to start out with. You need a niche down and you can always adjust it because you'll learn a lot. I became such an authority in that niche. West Point wanted to hire me. Their career services wanted to bring me on board. You know what happened now? Three years later, they all worked for me. <laughs> yes, the whole team, the director of career services and two other people, they worked for Career Nerds. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Excuse the travel voice, please. I just got back from a recon run for our upcoming DC Mexico event. I guess I overcooked it. I overcooked it. Here I am. <laughs> I'm recovering. I want to thank everyone for all the thoughtful emails about last week's podcast. People got emotional about it, specifically of knowing what you want. So this morning I called up Ian and I said, hey, this concept has really touched the nerve. This concept of I'm an opportunity seeker. I see myself as an entrepreneur. But I have shiny object syndrome, and now that I have a business, I feel like I'm not sure if it still fits my situation. Is it a curse or is it a blessing? And so Ian and I started to discuss it, and I found myself referencing this conversation that I'm going to play for you today the whole time. And I said, why don't we play this conversation first as a bedrock, and then next week we'll follow on. So I'll tell you the background of how this came about. Today's guest joined DC Black just a few months ago. Ian calls me up and he'd been working. His name's Tom Kent. He runs a company called Career Nerds, which is a $1.6 million productized service that helps people find great jobs. Now, Tom has a credible plan to double this business this year because we talk to him regularly. And it's really fascinating. You can see the level of detail and granularity to which he's broken this thing down. And so I want to bring that story here on the pod today. So after Ian gets off the phone with Tom in their first mastermind, he calls me up and he's like, you got to talk to Tom. He's doing some interesting stuff. We can learn from this guy. At our first DC Black event in New York City in December, I literally cornered the guy. We were having this big Italian dinner thing. There's 25 of us. We're clinking and stuff. And by the coat rack, I pull up an ottoman and I sit next to Tom and I'm like, Tom, I heard you got the goods, man. I heard you got the sales and marketing process. And that conversation led directly to today's podcast. I was so impressed at how clearly, in fact, we've called this a roadmap, how clearly Tom thinks about focusing on a niche, creating value, charging for it, and building a machine and a system that others can participate in about it such that it's built him a $1.6 million business that's doubling every year. In fact, he brought on 200 clients last year at $8,800 and he's going to share exactly the numbers involved in terms of the funnel. Everybody talks funnels. We're going to put numbers to the funnel today and talk about exactly how he does that. And specifically, there's a few mindset things that jumped out to me, which is why I brought up all the thoughtful letters at the top. Because at the beginning, when we first met Tom, he had one client when he was coaching them on how to get jobs. And guess how many ways there are to do that? A million. And he could have fallen victim to shiny object syndrome. But instead, he focused and he realized he'd move quicker and he'd learn more and he'd be able to branch out in the future. So maybe by watching a peer do something difficult, it can inspire us 
to do the same. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Tom Kent from Career Nerds. Tom, could you introduce yourself and let us know what it is that your business does? I'm Tom Kent, the founder and CEO of Career Nerds. We're a career coaching company focusing on helping mid-level execs take their career to the next level. I've been doing this now for five years. And before that, I had a 20-year career being very successful in getting jobs. And I took my talent and networking and getting great jobs and made it into a business. Why go the entrepreneurial route if you had a good career going? So I was really good at getting jobs. In 20 years, I had 20 jobs. Some lasted a year, some lasted less. But when I got the job, I kind of got bored. And I discovered that being an entrepreneur was actually much more in tune with what I felt and what inspired me. I went that route and I found that there's no looking back once I started. I want to talk about some of the key moments in the business, but could you let us know a little bit about the scale of the business in terms of like employees or revenue? Yeah, we've been, uh, last few years, we've been doubling every year over the last three years. We're at 1.6 million revenue this year, and we signed up 212 coaching clients last year. So it's been pretty fast growth, and uh, we have about 15 people on our team now. We think that we can uh, continue getting close to doubling every year. That's our goal. It's incredible. Say I'm an ideal client of yours. Yeah. I went to a military academy. Now I'm looking to get a new job as a director of marketing at a technology company. What do I buy from you exactly? Yeah. So like you said, our ideal client right now is people who went to one of the three U.S. military academies, West Point, Naval Academy, or Air Force, because our core methodology is to network you with other people in that core network. So the primary thing people buy from us is the outcome of a new job at a higher level. And the methodology we use is really two-pronged, making someone's personal brand really shine from their LinkedIn profile, their resume, and how they tell their story, starting with the elevator pitch. Once we have, that's the foundational phase, the personal brand, and then we move on to networking. We identify 500 people that are the best for them to network with based on title, role, industry, past company, current company. And our team actually sends out does the outreach for them from their LinkedIn profile. And the goal is to connect them with 50 to 100 decision makers, have real conversations. And that's really the secret sauce is about 50% of people get jobs in under 50 calls and 50% at 50 to 100. Wow. So you're basically taking the best practice of yourself as like someone who is capable of up-leveling your career on an annual basis and you're productizing out to other people who want to have a similar outcome. Yeah, that's exactly right. When I was switching jobs, when I made a big move once, this was almost 10 years ago, when I moved from New York City to Prague, I didn't know anybody here in Prague, Czech Republic is where I live. And I created a list of 500 people on LinkedIn. Within the first four to six weeks, I had uh, 70, 80 meetings. At the end of the second month, I already had 15 interviews and four job offers. And this is the kind of rapid networking that I systematized. And now it's what we do for each of our clients. One of the things working in a recruiting company, Tom, is I noticed that our candidates seem to get really frustrated by the job search process. Like they don't see it as an opportunity. They see it as a liability. 
by the time they get to the 10th application, they're already frustrated. And it's really interesting to hear you describe these numbers, like 50 calls, 100 calls. I just think about how much value that could drive for our candidates. Essentially, that's what I'm thinking of. Like you're bringing this kind of wisdom and process about a science behind what it really takes to get the next opportunity. So what we tap into, it's called the hidden job market. So the advertised market are the jobs you see on job boards, Indeed, and LinkedIn jobs, Dynamite jobs. But they say that 80% of the best jobs are through the hidden job market. People hire people they know, people they are referred to them, people they work with. And that's what I did when I was CMO in Silicon Valley. I would uh, hire people from my network. I put out an ad, get 200 resumes and realize, why is nobody reading the job description? And then I'd go to my network and hire people like that. And that's the way a lot of people hire, actually. 100%. In fact, that was one of the uh, core ideas we had when we started Dynamite Jobs. The idea is exactly what you're saying, which is why are all the best jobs never posted at a job board? And how do you get employers and candidates to sort of exist in that ecosystem? And LinkedIn's done a great job of that. That's why LinkedIn's such a powerful company in part, because they've unlocked that value for people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people really are focused on the 20% advertise. I say, hey, flip it. You should actually be focused on the 80% that is hidden, not advertise. And that's where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck and mining the hidden job market rather than the advertise market because everybody's going after that. And very few people are tapping into the hidden job market. So Tom, we talked about your expertise. You have a strong perspective about something that's valuable. I'm really curious about how you package it up, productize it, and put a price on it. Can you talk yeah. us through you know, what I have to pay to get your service and how you arrived at that number. Well, it's interesting. My first year was five years ago. I had just joined Dynamite Circle and um, flew to Bangkok for DCBKK, and I had one client. And I was like, <laughs> I was going to sponge for information. I had gone to a DC event here in Prague. I was really inspired and everybody kept talking about Thailand. I was like, there's no way I'm going to Thailand. It's going to be a lot of investment. And the more I thought about it, I was like, I need to go to Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, got inspired for the whole week. And then after that, I uh, went to Chiang Mai with a lot of the other DCers. And I want to share a story of what happened. Uh, so it's a 10-day workshop. And we start off by stating our goals. What's our goal for the end of the 10 days? And my goal at that time, I had one client at $1,000 and I, my goal was to get five clients at $1,000 a piece. So to get $5,000 within the 10 days. And then halfway through, we were talking about what we've achieved and we restated our goals based on what, what had happened in the first half. So on day six, I got up and I said, hey, I have no clients and I actually had zero sales calls as well. So I set a new goal that I'll get five sales calls by the end of the 10 days. Two days before, I still had no sales calls. And I went to DC here and I said, I think I need to change my goals again. And he said, why? I said, I don't think I can get five sales calls scheduled the next two days. And he asked me a very interesting question. He said, who's the most important person in your life? And I said, my mom. And he said, your mom's life was at stake. Would you be able to get five sales calls scheduled in the next two days? I said, absolutely. And I ended up getting seven scheduled. And what it did for me is something that has translated over the next five years for me is really being innovative and persistent and trying different things rather than trying just one thing. So doing a lot of 
testing. So I started thinking about different ways on how I could penetrate the market and get new clients. Can we come back to that moment really quickly, Tom, to interrupt? At that time, you had already done this thing where you were a hustler, you were a networker, you weren't scared to go out and get new jobs, and you were a brave guy. Yet, what was the breakdown that that didn't translate into this project of getting sales calls or sales? It was really, how do I communicate the right value prop in the right channels? And I didn't really have the channels down and the value prop. I had tried different things like networking with people I knew, talking to them, telling them, hey, I'll do a free coaching session. And actually, I did get my first client like that. But there was a limit to that because our network, not many people know people who are looking for jobs. It's a finite network. So I needed to reach out. And some of the things that I did was contact people who were academy grads to put on their Facebook page of their class an advertisement for my business that we were going to do like a free coaching. And so I tried different ways and I tried messaging different things, but I worked really hard the first few months and I kind of cracked the code in month four or five. So I found out that LinkedIn is a powerful tool if you message people in the right way. And it starts with two things. One, having the right personal brand on LinkedIn. So really showing up and using that headline, the 220 characters in the right way, having the right graphics on your banner. It's really like a landing page. So I saw LinkedIn as a landing page and I made a thousand edits to my LinkedIn profile. What are some secrets about having a great LinkedIn profile? Yeah. Quantify the scale and scope of what you've done. So on my profile, I have that we've coached over 500 people. We've helped people from Google, Facebook, Amazon. So using credibility names, right? Building trust and uh, really having the highlights there. You have seven seconds to make a first impression on LinkedIn. So you want to make sure that when you put something there, that people can scan it easily, see high value and see relevancy to what you can do for them. Gotcha. So once I did the LinkedIn profile and I was constantly updating that for probably the first year and I figured out how to do messaging to strangers. And there's a very simple thing that I did. It was a three-step process. First, you have to find out you message people where you have some kind of commonality, right? People will accept and respond when you have some kind. So you look for two or three points of commonality. Second is the structure of the message. So there's three ways that I structure the message. First, highlight what is the commonality between you and that person. Second, say something about them, nice about them that you see on their profile. And the third thing is a very clear call to action. In our case is, are you considering a new job over the next six to 12 months? That's it. If they say yes, then we can continue the dialogue. If not, then really there's no reason for a discussion. I heard Gary Vee recently say, (laughs) Gary Vaynerchuk, the uh, business guru, that LinkedIn is like the frontier right now, that there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs and business owners to focus more on LinkedIn. I know you've been a power user for many years. Why do you think he's saying that? LinkedIn is where all the professionals are. And if you approach people in the right way, you're going to get good responses. The thing is, I've actually heard also the opposite from a lot of people that have done LinkedIn lead gen. And uh, I'm friends with some people who have LinkedIn lead gen agencies. The issue that a lot of people have that they do wrong is that they just spam random people. They use InMail. We never use InMail. What is InMail? Can you clarify InMail versus? Yeah. So in LinkedIn, you can write 
somebody either by connecting with them and then writing them a direct message. Or if you have the advanced version of LinkedIn, you can write them directly. And that's typically what salespeople do. They write a very long sales text with links without permission to send them links. Hey, check out my PDF. Why would I want to read this PDF? So they're overwhelming people and it immediately triggers in my mind. This is a sales message and it's spam. So in-mail is not really what you want to use. You want to connect with people and then write them direct messages. Got you. And I'll just add, so the people that we both know that used to run LinkedIn agencies or other lead gen, the thing that they say is that when people have asked me like, hey, can you help me with LinkedIn lead gen? I say, if that's the only issue you have, then you probably have many other ones. You don't have any value prop. You don't know your customers. You don't know how to sell. So that's not usually the only problem people have. They have a full spectrum of the whole sales process and on the delivery side. So people are looking at LinkedIn as like a Hail Mary, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. One thing I just want to get for context is the product at this point, the pricing and how you structure mm-hmm. the product itself. Yeah, so the first year, I just wanted to get clients. So I priced it a thousand bucks, but the first few months, I had to discount a lot. So my average price was around 500 for the first six months. When I started getting a lot of clients, I started raising the rates. So my first year, I went from average price point from 500 to 7,000. That's how high the demand was. Now, what I did also, I iterated on the product. When you have a lot of clients, then it gives you a chance to try things out with different clients. And that first year was really monumental because I changed it from not knowing what I was going to coach them, just like sharing what I did to really formalizing it into a process where we were actually doing the outreach for them. And now we have a coaching workbook with 10 tabs and it's very structured and systematized that our nine coaches now follow. It's incredible. So I'm curious, what were some of those key moments in terms of getting to a point of scale? Like once you have the first group of customers coming in, you've managed to reach out to people on LinkedIn. What was like one of those next aha moments along the way that was a breakthrough moment for you? Yeah, so it's about probably month five when I had figured out exactly how to write people, how to target them, who my ideal client was, that I signed up 18 clients in one month. And I realized, okay, now I need to start outsourcing some of the work. And the first thing I outsourced was the physical writing of the messages on LinkedIn, the LinkedIn lead generation. But I wasn't looking to the agency to write it for me or develop the target audience. I actually told them exactly what to write and they just executed that. So really offloading on that, that was the first thing that I did once I got 18 clients in one month. So right now the product is at $7,000? No, we raised the price twice uh, end of last year. So we're at 8,800 right now for 13 sessions. So I guess I'm so curious about how you sell an $8,800 product. If you could take me through, I think why Ian really wasn't pushing me to speak with you is he's just so impressed by how you built your sales team. And I would like to talk about how 212 new customers come through paying high, you know, I I just want to dig into that, Tom, and I want to get inspired to do it myself. Like if I want to build a sales team, sell high dollar products, it seems pretty daunting to me, especially to figure out how your funnel works in terms of like 212 customers. Well, how many phone calls and then how many leads is that? 
So there's a big question. <laughs> yeah, that's been the great journey I've been on for the last year and a half. And it took us a year, just over a year, to finalize our sales process. First, it starts with having enough leads, right? So right now, we actually do LinkedIn lead generation from four profiles, mine and three people on my team. So four. And together, we send about 200 messages per day. This includes follow-up messages, right? So it's uh, Grant Cardone says fortune is in follow-up. You just don't send one message. You have a whole sequence of messages that you send. And it's different wording. We also send videos and stuff like that. How much of like what you guys are saying is homebrew? Like you determined that sequence versus learning from people like on the web, getting best practices out there. I developed most of myself by testing what works. Then I hired an agency to do my LinkedIn Legion. The other three are done by our internal team, but the agency was a British agency and they wrote everything in British English. And I actually have to rewrite every single message. <laughs> But it was a collaborative effort where we were able to uh, work on it together. And we say messages like, hey, uh, would you like to know how to increase your lifetime earnings from one to three million over the course of your career? That's a value point. Then we uh, have like, hey, we're hosting a group call. Would you like to join? So we have different things. We have a sequence of 20 messages that's being sent. And what's important is that we have follow-up messages to each message that's sent. So when they get these sequence of messages, then they think maybe I should engage with that person. So the LinkedIn lead generation is really important. Putting some thought into what will get people to respond and really having value bombs, like providing value. What kind of value would there be in talking to you into the message? How do you do that? Like the example I said is, would you like to know how we created a solution that can add one to $3 million over your lifetime, over your career? In terms of earnings, that's one thing. Another thing is about building your network and stuff like that. Got you. And so is this like five days a week or seven? We do five days a week only. So we're talking about 50,000 outbound messages, ballpark. How did you arrive at that number? Is that your target market size? Is it arbitrary? So that includes follow-up messages, right? So like I said, we have a sequence of 20 messages. So the 200 messages is how many messages we're sending, but not how many people. I see, I see. What is our percentage rate from contact on LinkedIn yeah. to getting on the phone or a group call with one of, someone on your team? So I have about 15,000 academy grads that I'm connected with, but then my other three profiles, they have anywhere from three to 5,000, but sometimes there might be duplicates. So I would say maybe rough, 20 to 25,000. So that universe of Academy grads is 150,000 on LinkedIn. And we probably are messaging the top 20, 25,000 out of those that have the most senior roles. Oh, I love it when you can just break, start breaking things down like this. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so much fun. And I think about, you know, Tom, when you first started this business, you're like, I don't know how to get people on the phone just yet. Yeah. And now, five years later, we're like, there's 150,000 people. You know what I mean? Like, you're starting yeah. to turn it into a science, which is what I think good businesses do. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just add to that. It's like, we know our numbers. Every week, we're tracking this. So we know how many messages have been sent. And so the first key metric on the sales side is how many people sign up and attend our sales calls. So I used to be, for four years, I was doing one-on-one -on -one calls. I would never have time in my calendar 
people would have to book a month ahead. And then as I was growing my sales team, when I first started out doing this about a year and a half ago, I brought on seven people. They were all people that could work part-time. They were all academy grads. And we didn't have the process really dialed in. They were going to do their own. And I was doing my own lead gen and taking my own calls. And then as I was coaching them, I thought, you know what? I'm probably not the best sales coach. I know how to do it, but I don't know how to show them. So I hired the sales coach. Not only did he help them, but he helped me. And he said, Tom, your time is too valuable to doing one-on-one calls with tire hitters. You need to do group sales calls. And my first reaction was like, what? Group sales calls? Because I've been used to doing one-on-one. And I said, why don't I just send them a video, like a video sales letter? He's like, no, people want to do it live. So I found out how to do it on Calendly. You can actually do a group meeting. And I started doing this presentation. But the first month, my results were pretty bad. Like what happens in the call? Is everybody like grumbling while you're giving the presentation or? No, you have to be very efficient. It's still half an hour. So, you know, at first I was going through the presentation, then answering their questions. And then the call to action was to set up a one-on-one call with me. Oh, wow. And I was getting really low conversion rates. So during that presentation, are you basically sharing the method? Like, are you basically saying like, look, if you want to do this and not hire us, here's how you would do it? Yep. We're sharing how academy grads are finding great jobs in the headed job market. We open up our methodology for them. But I was really bad when I first started. And I wanted to go back to one-on-one. I was like, I need it. But then I looked in my calendar and I was like, I never had time before. So I dug down and optimized it and really spent the next three to six months improving the presentation, improving my conversion rates. Now we get 60% of people signing up for a one-on-one call. And before it was like 15%. So how many people are in the group call, Tom, watching the presentation? So we started out with different numbers. So I started out with 10 and then the show up rate, you can set any numbers, max and Calendly. And for 10, it was average show up rate would be five or six. Then I made it 20. And then sometimes I had 15 people. Mm-hmm. Now for the last year, we've had 13 as the max because we usually max out, but then we get three cancellations usually a few days before. And then our show up rate is usually like eight to 10. So that's a really manageable group to ask questions from everybody. Got you. And so there's like a little bit of groupthink happening there too. Like they can kind of hear each other, but they're also like talking each other into it. So what happens is uh, right away, I've now done probably 100, 150 of these group calls. So I start off with a lot of energy, say, hey guys, we're gonna have action pack half an hour. How many uh, West Porters we got here? How many Navy grads? All right, raise your hand. How many Air Force grads? All right, in the Zoom chat, write your name, academy year and title. And then everybody see who's on the call, right? So you bring everybody together. That's really cool. And then when I give the presentation, I give the agenda. So I say, hey, we'll have three parts today. First, I'm going to share with you how we help academy grads tap in the head of job market. Second, we're going to have plenty of time for group Q&A. You're going to hear other people's questions. And the third step will be set up a one-on-one call with our head of coaching or our vice president who's on the call as well. How hard is your sell? At the end of the call, you're like, I gave you a bunch of value. If you'd love to continue, here's a link for you guys. Are you like giving them the Grant Cardone hard sell? Like if you don't click this link, it means you don't take your life, your career seriously. How hard is your sales pitch at the end? That's interesting. I don't think we do a hard sell at all, but we, we do a good job of selling the next step. So I involve the sales rep in the Q&A, giving him credibility. And I say, hey, this is your chance for a one-on-one call to understand 
where your career is now, where it's heading, and you're going to get some valuable information. So we're selling that next step, which is the one-on-one call, gotcha. right? It's not selling on the group call. Do you mention your pricing? Yes, we do. Okay. Yeah, we, cool. we have to, because the thing is, the purpose of the group call is to get the tire kickers out. So we mentioned the pricing and then we do have an ROI calculation as well. So we say, hey, if you have a job and we help you get a job at our low end, it's average is 50 to 100K increase in the first year after working with us. So that's usually a 6X ROI just in your first year salary minimum. And if you're in between jobs, then uh, if we help you get a job just one or two weeks earlier, it already pays for itself. So we have a whole slide on the ROI. Interesting. So we're reaching out to 20,000 people a year. And what percentages do you think we could benchmark if we're going to build a sales team are going to show up to a group call and then are going to come down to the one-on-one call and then are going to actually buy the product? What kind of drop-offs can we expect? Because it's similar to the original concept of you reaching out on LinkedIn and getting your first few clients and then getting new jobs. I think people looking to start a sales team, it's not intuitive, the numbers game, you know? Mm-hmm. And we expect things to go right more often than they do. So I'm curious if you could, you have a well-honed process. Yeah. How do those numbers funnel down into ultimate the 212 that you brought on last year? Yeah. So when we send 200 messages a day, those are all, it includes the follow-on messages, right? So it's not 200 new people, it yep. could be old people as well. That's a thousand people a week. Out of the thousand people a week, we usually get 50 people signing up for group sales calls. That's a 5% conversion rate from lead messages sent out to people showing up by group calls. From that, we have about a uh, 80% show up rate. And from people who show up, we have a 60% booking rate to book a one-on-one call during the group sales call. And from that, we're converting about 25 to 30% into clients. Tom, what is the gap in close rate on those one-on-one calls from your best sales rep to your worst in terms of performance? So right now we're about even. We used to have a big gap, but we've got our head sales guy. And then we have two other salespeople who are actually our coaches. So they have a lot of credibility with the clients. And this was very interesting. Like when I made this whole, I went through three iterations of uh, building a sales team. So first, I didn't really have a process developed and I just brought in people and one guy out of seven, he's now our vice president of sales. He actually was able to sell the only one who was, so we kept him. Then I went through another iteration where I hired through a sales recruiter, three people that had sold high ticket sales. They weren't academy grads and they were good. All three were good and we solidified on one because we only needed one. But then uh, I had to fire him because he didn't want to work, do pipeline reviews, and he was belligerent. So I had to rebuild the sales team again. And then I found that two of my coaches had really good sales presence. Just by interacting with them, I said, hey, you guys want to test this out? Let's do it. And now we have three solid team members. So it was just a lot of persistence. And throughout the process, what I noticed is you got to formalize things. So we made a lot of iterations on the group, sales call, sales deck, really dialed in. And then I created a one-page sales script that each salesperson follows during their one-on-one sales calls. And I also hired a fractional sales manager that does sales coaching, pipeline reviews every week with them. Can you describe what a pipeline review is? 
Yeah. So it's taking a look at uh, all the deals you have where you've talked to clients and you have deals that are likely to close. And the sales manager, he gives uh, advice on what to communicate to them and how to manage the pipeline. Like we look at the numbers and also tips and tricks on what to say to those prospects. That's so interesting. I'm wondering if you could share a few of those things with me. And the kind of context of the question is like, what makes a good salesperson in yeah. your view? Because a lot of us are founder-led sales. Yeah. Probably the majority of listeners are doing their own sales. And so what can we improve and what do your best salespeople, what are they like? Yeah. So when I first started working with external salespeople, people besides me, I thought they'll just see the way I sell and they'll sell like me. And then I join them on calls and it was totally different. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> and I'm part of a coaching, there's a business that coaches me and we use this thing called DRS. Do it yourself, make it a repeatable process and then scale it. And I was always skipping the second one, the repeatable process. I was going from do it myself to scaling it to other people. Why were you skipping? Because I thought if I show them how I do it without the structure, then they can do it. But that was my mistake and it's laziness. You know, you don't want to create a, a manual or something, but I realized that that was really needed. And when I did that, the people were able to really follow the exact system. People can't just copy what you do. They have to have a manual. That's super interesting. What were some of the things that you were doing that were successful versus things that are less successful in terms of sales? So the things that I found intuitive was in coaching, you're selling the outcome, not the process, right? You know, when people come in, they think, I'm going to sell the process, the coaching hours, and how many sessions you get, and what we do. And nobody cares about that. But, well, they do, but they really care about the new job. And so it's really about selling. I say sales is about three things. First, establishing very quickly a rapport with the other person. People buy from people that they like. How do you do that on a sales call? First, by being uh, nice, pleasant, but second, by finding some commonalities building on those commonalities very quickly yep, so that you're likable. And then it's talking about their career goals. So both pain and gain, what is frustrating them and where do they want to achieve in terms of their goals, right? So pain and gain. And then only then do you talk about the process, the way we get you there, because people don't care about the process until you understand what their goals are. You've broken like three things down in this call into threes. Yeah. Is that a skill set you've learned through selling? Yeah, I learned that in Toastmasters. Every time you give a speech, you break things into threes. So all my <laughs> slides are built into threes. Everything's in threes, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. So you're at a 25 to 30% close rate. Yeah. It seems like you're in a position now where, like, what is the limiter in the system that you've built? What are the challenges that you're facing now? Or can you just turn all the knobs to 10 and double your business next year? So we've been doubling every year for the last three years because we've added more leads for more profiles. We've added more salespeople. We added more group calls. I used to do one group call a week. Now I do four or five. And now my sales team actually hosts some of them as well. But on average, we do about four or five. What's the limit? Well, the University of Academy guys is 150,000. And the top group, I think 20, 30,000 is the adjustable market. And I think we can probably get, right now we've coached 600 uh, academy grads. I think we can get to maybe two, three, maybe 4,000 before we start looking at other verticals. 
we're all in into this for the next year or two, but then we're going to start thinking maybe about other niches like Ivy League MBAs, because we've actually coached a lot of Harvard, Stanford, uh, Wharton MBAs, but their undergrads were the military schools. Gotcha. So it is a different methodology though. It's a different conversion rate, different way of approaching them. So we decided that to do that now would be a distraction to our business because you're running two businesses if you have two types of client uh, segments. It's interesting, like, and part of the reason it's so interesting to hear about your sales team and how you've built it is that those are things that are the same in every business. But, you know, like, I could probably borrow your sales team and my business would improve dramatically. But it's those initial insights that are often unique to each and every business. And you're sort of pointing to that now, which some people call like a cornered resource. And so I want to try to make a guess at what yours is and then see if you think it's true. Was it that you recognized there was a unique opportunity amongst graduates of academies and the way that they interacted uniquely on LinkedIn? Was that the thing that you saw that kind of nobody else really took seriously? Yeah, and it was a journey how I got to that. So when I first met you five years ago, I, I told you I was focusing on people leaving the military, entering the corporate world. And initially, that wasn't what I wanted to do because it had been 20 years since I left the military. That, that wasn't something that was very familiar to me. Like you didn't identify with the academy as much as just being a business guy or professional. Yes, exactly. Because I had actually not, it was so many years removed that for me, that wasn't something that I thought would resonate. But a lot of people said, you need to niche down. So I thought, okay, let me start with active duty getting out. So I focused on that for about five months. And I kept getting people that were in corporate world that had gone to the military academies that were in active duty. And then I found that they were actually better clients. They had, it was easier to market them and they were willing to pay more, which active duty everything is given to you for free and people don't know how hard it is to find a good job. And so that was what happened at month six. And I always tell people, it doesn't matter what your niche is to start out with. You need a niche down and you can always adjust it because you'll learn a lot. I became such an authority in that niche for the first six months. West Point wanted to hire me and their career services wanted to bring me on board. You know what happened now? Three years later, they all worked for me. <laughs> yes, the whole team, the director of Career Services and the two other people, they work for Career Nerd. So, and I found it so fascinating. Can you was, define that niching down? Because I think uh, yeah. it's so challenging for people to do. So maybe if you could describe what it looked like for you in another way, maybe it would inspire people to niche down. And because I agree with you, I find myself really being passionate about that point. So there's two things I like to tell people, niche till it hurts and riches are in niches. <laughs> And it hurts because we feel like we're cutting off opportunities, right? Oh, yeah. When I first started coaching, I wanted to do everything. Life coaching, relationship, career. And then I realized I'm not going to be able to do everything. And I focused on career transition. And the target group was active duty military leaving. And I gave it all. I, I believed in it, even though I didn't want to do that hard of the niche. But it helped me develop such credibility and understand this group. And then it helped me actually pivot into a better niche of people who were actually in corporate uh, life for 5, 10, 20 years and happened to have gone to the military academies as their undergrad. From like, a, if you're going to like do the, the niche until it hurts or riches in a niche, like from a 
kind of like a structural perspective, it's easier to get brand equity in a smaller niche. So like often we'll see somebody who's like very famous, like a success guru or something. And then you think, well, like success guru, large addressable market, high dollar ticket. So I'll emulate that. But there's always a story of like some niche that they were micro famous in first. And the reason is, is because to just compete as a success guru, when there's a thousand other choices for success gurus, it's extremely hard to differentiate and to build brand equity. But if you start to build brand in a very narrow niche, it's easier to demonstrate expertise, for example. It's easier to demonstrate relevance. And I think I say it almost as a reminder to myself, you can always shed your cape and put on a new sign. And that captures quite a larger niche, which is exactly what you're describing. I always use the analogy of the blue ocean strategy, right? So you don't want to go where there's a lot of sharks. That's the red ocean, a lot of competition. So in the academy grad network of helping people with career transition, career nerds, my company is the only company out there because nobody does what we do. We have people every day asking me, hey, can I be part of your company? Every day. People don't make a choice between us and a competitor. It's us or do nothing. And that's where you want to be. Tom, you go to a lot of entrepreneurship events and maybe a lot of your peers have had similar businesses for the last three to five years, whereas yours has been doubling. I'm wondering if you could point, your ability to niche is one of the things you're pointing to. Are there some other things like patterns that or things that you're embracing that you feel like are leading to your ability to grow versus folks who maybe aren't growing as much? I would say probably... uh, Two things. One is persistence and ability to make mistakes and learn from them and trial and error, do that fast. And I think the persistence and really figuring out what is it going to take to work, like the group sales calls, I worked for three, four months on optimizing the slide deck. I had several people work on it and we worked together and optimized it and, and sales kept growing. And then trial and error, I went through three times rebuilding my sales team. Didn't mean that sales went down. We actually went up every time, but for one reason or the other, I had to keep rebuilding it. It's really that persistence and ability to fail. And I always tell my team, guys, hey, we make mistakes. That's okay. I'm going to make the most mistakes because I'm trying out so many things. And I understand if we make mistakes, but if we already optimize something, let's try to not make mistakes. There's a magic too to being focused and like holding your coaching accountable to certain sorts of outcomes or certain sorts of people. Because you can measure, right? You just told me what the outcomes are likely. You told me what it takes to get to the outcomes. Like, hey, we've trialed and erred. If you send at least 50 messages to potential employers, you're going to get this many phone calls. That builds your credibility, your expertise. And so when you fail, you improve because you're focused. Versus I see a lot of people with more general ambitions fail and then kind of start from scratch again. Because it's like, well, we failed at something that was vague and broad. But when you fail at like 50 outreaches to get our clients new jobs, it's like, well, damn, we're not getting these clients jobs. So we need to try a different thing. And so there's a, I think in the internet-based business, consulting, coaching businesses like we run, there's a risk of being vague. And then you don't learn every time you do something. It seems like you've done a good job of like really being clear about what you're doing. Yeah. And really using failure as a learning point, I think is the biggest thing because that's really the gift you're getting as you're failing fast. And sometimes that's the only way you can learn is by continually failing. 
Tom, I want to ask you two personal questions before we uh, run along. You have a really great bookshelf behind you. There's so many cool books there. I'm wondering if you could just share one or two books that you love or that have inspired you in the past five years to go on this journey. It's a reader's book. The four-hour. We're holding up the four-hour work week expanded edition. Well, here's the book that we, we tell our clients to read, 20-minute networking meeting. Let's talk about it. Learn to network, get a job. It looks like almost like a textbook. It is. It's very simple. It's basically a story about two people. One person networks the incorrect way. One person to learns to network the correct way. And the way I got my hands on this book is one of my clients in the first year, he said, hey, there's a book that you should read. And, and I was teaching people how to network, but I had never read this book. And I learn a lot from my clients. And so my client recommended this. And the author, Nathan Perez, actually did a podcast with him. And so I've reached out to him and I had him uh, as a guest. I learned a lot from them. But four-hour work week really helps you like systematize how to take what's in your brain and execute it so that other people are doing it. And I think that we can expand and grow a business when we have the right people executing our vision. So it's about systematizing. We have a probably like 50 to 75 SOPs. Everything we do more than once is written down into SOP and followed. So that book has meant a lot for our work week. I was going to ask you, it's funny, um, a lot of what brings us together is we're kind of a loose four-hour work week alumni network. And one of the things that connects us is travel. And I'm yeah. curious if, like you mentioned at the top of the call that you're sitting in this wonderful office in uh, Prague right now. And I know you've lived there for many years. I'm curious if you could walk us through how you decided to live abroad. I went through a job change and a relationship change 10 years ago. And I had been stationed in Europe and Italy when I was in the army. And I wanted to move back to Europe. And my parents are from Prague, so I have Czech citizenship. I moved here. I used my networking methodology to find a job, then actually moved to Berlin and moved back to Prague. And part of starting a business was because the right kinds of marketing jobs weren't that plentiful in Prague that they were in the U.S. And I couldn't got a job, but I just was like, hey, why don't I just start a business helping people find jobs? Because I'm really good at that. And it doesn't matter where I am. So my first year... I worked a lot of late hours till midnight. And then the second year I worked till 10. And I always thought my business would uh, go down. It actually went up. Then I worked till eight. And now I usually finish at six or seven. And we have a US team now, so it doesn't matter really. And I take the opportunity, like last year, I think I traveled five or six months out of the year. I was in Colombia. I went to Mexico twice, Thailand. So I take the opportunity to travel as much as I can. That's part of you know being a business owner as you can do you want with your time. That's super cool. Well, Tom Kent, thanks for swinging by the Tropical MBA podcast. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.